This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. For a full year, we've been looking at the life teachings and works of Jesus in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And last week, Ben, we concluded that, the look at the four Gospels at least, but we're not done with the life of Jesus. Because 65 years later, John, one of his apostles, wrote the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, he has some encounters with the risen and now ascended Jesus and quotes him. And so we have some of the words of Jesus many years beyond his time on earth that appear in the book of Revelation. So I just thought as we wrap this up, we're in week 51 of 52 weeks that we might take a look at that. Just a reminder to the listener that even though we're on week 51 of 52 weeks, that will conclude it for this year when we do that, but it doesn't conclude it altogether because Jesus' message continues. Next year, we'll have season two in which we'll take a look at the mission of Jesus expressed through the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. We'll be talking about that more a little bit later, but be anticipating that. That will drop on January 9th of next year for the first time, and the first uh, every Monday uh, thereafter. Okay, so let's take a look at this this uh, book of Revelation just briefly. In Revelation chapter 1, it begins with this, the revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So it's claiming right out of the gate to be from Jesus. Over in verse 9, Revelation 1 still, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because the word of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And what we're going to take a look at are those seven churches that were just named. And we'll we'll look at a few of them today, Ben, and some of the things that Jesus spoke to them through John. So what do you think is at work here? I mean, it's dicey for me to ask this because Revelation is probably the most controversial of the books in all of the Bible. There's people who have multitude of views on it one way or the other. I don't think we're going to dive into all of that today. But as Jesus is speaking these words to John so many years later, and it's been a long time, 65 years, John's now an old man. Why do you think Jesus would want to do that and speak these words and, and give a message so that John could express that to us, and we have it today as the book of Revelation. I've always seen these words uh, to these seven churches as a call to faithfulness, in some cases a call to repentance, 
in some cases, a call to endure uh, under uh, intense persecution. And really, the, the book of Revelation, while a lot of times people look at it through the lens of predictive prophecy um, and get caught up in the imagery of, of, in Re- of Revelation and, and what does it relate to, and you know they have all the conversations about premillennialism, amillennialism, pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, mid-tribulation, all those fun conversations, right, that are great to have in a dark room uh, somewhere with yourself more than anything. But that being said, the book of Revelation overall, it's, it's a word of encouragement. Mm. You read Revelation and you're encouraged to faithfulness because it's a reminder that as Christ has triumphed over death uh, post-cross, that he has you know, walked out of the tomb three days later, it's the reminder that he's going to return. And so as he triumphed over death at the, at the, at the cross, he has won. Um, and really, it's a reminder that as Jesus has won, Jesus will return. And it's this encouragement to, to stay faithful, to stay on mission, and to be encouraged. I read Revelation, and while at one point in my life, you know, I was bound up in the curiosity of what does the imagery relate to, and in my pre-mill or pre-trib, or, you know, where do I align myself theologically— I look at the book of Revelation through a much different lens now, and I see it more than anything is a huge encouragement to the follower of Christ and a call to, in essence, be faithful and to stay on mission and go bear witness to Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Be, stay faithful, we win. Yeah, yeah, he's won, so yeah. we're good. Yeah, we win with him. Yeah. So, by the way, next year when we do the, the year-long study on the rest of the New Testament, we call it Beyond Mission. The podcast will be the mission of Jesus. We're going to spend the last four weeks in the book of Revelation. So, because we're, to, we're committed to do the whole New Testament. So, we'll spend maybe a little more time looking at some of these other kinds of topics. But for today, let's just take a look at these messages to the seven churches. They're in Revelation 2 and 3. I don't know that we'll do every word from every church. That probably won't have time for that. But let's take a look at a few of them. And I want to start right out of the gate with the first, the first part in Revelation 2, and that is the message to the church in Ephesus. If there's any place that we know a lot about, it's Ephesus in the New Testament times. Of course, we have the book of Ephesians that was in Ephesus, and we have the book of Acts, which they spend quite a bit of time in Ephesus and the things that were going on there. Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus. We have First and Second Timothy, and we have a number of things that we can look at, and this is one more of them. So we, we have a good insight of what was happening in Ephesus, which is on the coast of modern-day Turkey. We have a good insight of what's taking place there, but here it begins in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Verse 2, I know your deeds. We're going to see that to be a familiar phrase, and what follows that are either good words or not so good words. But here he says, I know your deeds, and he lifts up several positive traits of the Ephesian people. Your hard work, your perseverance, 
I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered. You have endured hardships for my name. You've not grown weary. That's a pretty good list, isn't it? I mean, if, if that can be said about me at my funeral, um, I don't know if I'll be a happy man because I mean, you know, I'll, I'll be dead and with the Lord forever. But that's that's not a bad way to look at somebody about to say. And so the Ephesian people they had done okay. However, verse four: Yet I hold this against you: you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Okay, Ben, got a question. How can you have forsaken the love you had at first? I assume by that, the love you had for God, the love you had for Jesus. How can it, how can it be that they lost their first love? And at the same time, they were known for hard work and perseverance and not tolerating evil and testing the spirits and persevering and not growing weary and all of those, those good traits but they'd fallen far from their love for God. How can those be held in tension with one another? I think that there's a real warning here to, to many of us from the standpoint of, you know, Jesus celebrates in essence, the way I, I read this passage is he celebrates in essence their theological purity from the standpoint that they have done well to call what is good, good, and what is evil, evil. And I see that really born out of Paul's words uh, to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, where Paul warns them about the potential for, you know, the wolf in sheep's clothing to enter uh, into the gates. And he tells them to be on guard. And in essence, they have. They have been on guard and they have, uh, in essence, maintained the the theological purity, which Jesus desires uh, from them, which he... uh, which he encourages here in Revelation, which he affirms in them. Um, but in that, I think, in essence, the, in maintaining their theological purity, they've become almost hard-hearted in, in reaching to the world beyond their walls, in essence. I feel like they've, they've in, uh, in some ways, kind of closed ranks. And so one of the things you see in the church, uh, and this one of the things I love— uh, that we can look at the New Testament. And really what you see is you see not the whole lifespan of the church in Ephesus, but you see the starting point in Ephesus. And then you see uh, you know, Paul's words to them as he's on his way to Jerusalem. You see uh, Paul writing to them while he's in, uh, while he's in Rome. And so you see this, this, uh, the church in Ephesus uh, over the years, in, in essence. But one of the things you know is that when... Paul first proclaimed the gospel in Ephesus. It took off like nobody's business. Um, the the growth and the people coming to receive Christ upended the city itself. And and I think that that's Jesus's ultimately when he's calling them to repentance, is he's calling them out of this this uh, this self isolation um, to actually go and to bear witness to Christ, to share the love that ultimately they have. Um, rather than kind of closing ranks into this kind of theological self-preservation, this is the means to avoid evil, is to 
to basically isolate uh, among one another. So and I might think, be reading too much into well, it. Well, maybe so. That's interesting. So in verse five there, it says, consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. That's what you're referencing. Like right. they, at first they, they were willing to confront things and, and press the gospel and, and, and speak against the people with the Artemis statues. And there's, there's a whole bunch that's, that's to, in, in Ephesus that, you think maybe they they had pulled back from that, and that while they were in their holy huddle with one another, yeah. they were no longer being the salt so, and light in that yeah, community. Yeah, so scared of false uh, false truth uh, entering into the community that they've tried they've basically tried to keep everybody out of community, which means they're not going forth and sharing the gospel with others. Hmm. That's my take on it, yeah. at least. Interesting, interesting ideas there. Because I, I guess maybe I haven't looked at it that deeply too many times. Just said, you know, how could they just have, how could they fallen out of love with God? I mean, one of the things that, that I, I think about a lot as, as a person who's been in the church my entire life, and I committed my life to Jesus Christ when I was in elementary school, I really haven't fallen away. I've gone to church every week of my life. I've never missed more than three weeks in a row of going to church, except for COVID did that to me when I was in the hospital for all those, all those days and, and very sick. Uh, yet I, I, I concerned that in my own life, I don't want to ever get to the place where I abandon what really matters, my love for God. E- even the professionalism of ministry can sometimes get in the way for me personally, of a depth of a love for God. So maybe I've looked at it on a more of a, a touchy-feely level that to forsake my first love is like abandon my first love. My, my first love is to God and how everything else can get in the way that even all the good deeds of, of ministry and, and just being a Christian and being a follower of, of Jesus, what, do you want, what the first commandment is, love the Lord your God with everything you have. So, but it's interesting insights that you have there that I'm going to, I'm going to have to think about those and process those a little more deeply. Let's, let's uh, skip down to Pergamum. We're not going to be up time for all these, but Pergamum's at the uh, Revelation chapter two, verse 12. And I find a few interesting things here as well. He says, again, I know that's in verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. That's a rotten place to build a house, but that's where they live. Yet you remain true to my name. That's pretty cool. You did not renounce your faith in me in some trying times. He talks about there. Like, so they've remained steadfast and remained faithful. Nevertheless, verse 14, I have a few things against you. And here they come. There are some among you who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that, here's the the upshot, they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Verse 15, likewise, you also have those who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans, who also, by the way, the Nicolaitans were people who were encouraging people to, to loose living, just to have a good time. And if you want to do it, you go ahead and you go ahead and do it. You're saved, so what does it matter how you live your life? And this is a rebuke 
to that, that way of thinking that we can do anything we want in terms of our, our spiritual journey, this food that's been sacrificed. It wasn't the food itself, but it had been used in idolatrous worship and then sexual immorality. Hey, nothing's changed, has it? I mean, sexual immorality is still a, a prevalent problem in the church and the Christian community today, and often is, is looked at and said, oh, well, that's no big deal. People can live their lives any way they want. And this is a statement that's made to the church in Pergamum that these are the things that Jesus has against them. What, what, are you, what are you looking at this and you're thinking, how did, how did they receive this and what's going on? And now they're looking like, am, am I that person who's, who's falling for this false worship or doing whatever, you know, whatever feels good, do it. Or maybe their friend is and they haven't spoken against that. What, what, what's taking place here in good old Pergamum? One one of the ways that that I read this, and it's it was it would have been an issue in the first century church, is that, uh, you know, coming to faith in Christ would have compromised, in essence, would have compromised your ability to make a living in a lot of cases, because uh, in order to make a living, depending on what kind of trade you were involved in, there were all these trade guilds. And a part of the trade guild was that they would oftentimes sacrifice, uh, they, they would be eating meals that were ultimately sacrificed to some idol that, uh, that the trade guild was, you know, professed to, to worship. And so one of the issues that, that could be at play here is that you have folks who having come to Christ are a part of a trade guild and are still engaged in these idolatrous practices and Jesus calling them to faithfulness. The idea that, you know what? You're gonna you're gonna walk with me. You're gonna be faithful to me. You're gonna pick up your cross and follow after me. You know the chips fall uh, where they where they may, even if that might mean a loss of of potential uh, income. Um, mm. But as I as I read through this, and I'm also struck, obviously, that you know Jesus calls them to account because they hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, who, as we talked about earlier, the the church in Ephesus. They rejected the, t- you yes. know, the, again, theological purity that you see in Ephesus, the desire to that, the desire to call out false teaching, whereas the church in Pergamum, what they're wrestling with ultimately is they have allowed for false teaching and they have become, you know, in essence, anti-law where it's, we can, well, they're doing all, they're engaged in all sorts of activities they are outside the desire of Christ. It's a temptation for all of us today to find what does it mean to, to truly, we talked last time, last podcast, about the part of the Great Commission, part of discipleship is to learn or to teach to be obedient. What does it mean to obey the commands of Christ? And now we're coming face-to-face in confrontation with ourselves as we look at these churches 65 years later who in some variety of ways had wavered from that, drifted from that obedience to Christ. Did, did they know better? Of course they did. They, they knew that sexual immorality was immoral. They, they knew it was not good. It was not right. It wasn't approved of by God. But it was happening in life. It was happening in the culture. It was happening all around them. It was the way things are. 
And so who's the church to stand against it? Well, and to that end, like with sexual morality, a lot of, in essence, pagan religion in the first century, um, as you, you see in, you know, in the 21st century, um, there were aspects of sexual immorality that was, were engaged in, uh, in essence, uh, through the mindset of some sort of heightened spiritual experience. And so you've got, you know, pagan cults that are engaged in all sorts of sexual immorality that would make, uh, (laughs) there were very, there were no taboos, right? In the, in the first century, people think that, you know, there was a prudishness in the first century that, that just doesn't exist today. And, you know, sadly folks are not up to date on historical reality. Uh, but that being said, yeah, they're engaged in oftentimes probably some sort of pagan ritual, uh, sexual immorality that would have been found in the first century, which is nothing new. Yeah, there's nothing new under the it's sun. It's as old as time, and it's it's yeah. still with us today. All right, let's let's keep moving on, and we will skip down to a couple of other ones. Um, we're gonna we're gonna maybe I'm gonna partner up Sardis in Revelation three one to six and Laodicea, and I'm gonna see if I can connect these two. I'm gonna skip Philadelphia mainly because the Phillies are in the middle of the World Series right now as we're recording this, and by the time this drops, uh, they will have either won or lost. So I don't want to be inflicting any more damage on, on the Phillies if they would if they happen to lose the World Series. Um, and then let's, that's, um, let's just take a look at Sardis and Laodicea, the, the beginning and end of Revelation chapter 3. And the reason I'm connecting these, and I don't know if it's even a valid thought, but in, in the one with Sardis, in Revelation 3, verse 1, near the end of verse 1, the words of Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Pair that with a thought of Laodicea in Revelation 3, verse 15. I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. You're lukewarm. There seems to be a, a similar thread there of you look alive, but you're dead. You're kind of sleepwalking. To you seem like you're the kind of right kind of water to drink, but you're neither cold nor hot. You're in, you're you're tepid. You're who wants you? And it, those feel the same to me. I don't know if they they do to you or not. But they feel like they're they're not as strong as the two that we just looked at. But they're like, come on, make a decision. Like, be something. Don't just sleepwalk through your life and through faith. Am I seeing this a way that you see it? Yeah, there's a facade of faithfulness in both of them, but neither of them are, are faithful. You and think so, that's like the, the, the bigger issue with the modern church? Like, we're just like doing the thing and, you know, we're having the pancake flip bake sale and we're, do, we're doing our stuff you know, but we're just kind of sleepwalking through faith. Yeah, absolutely. Um, from the standpoint that it's almost one of those things where, and it's not so much, you know, I think these two churches are engaged in, in essence and paying lip service to Christ. I mean, they can talk a really good game, undoubtedly. And one of the churches, at least Laodicea, 
you know, many of these folks are probably materially wealthy uh, to boot, which is, you know, blinded them to their own spiritual uh, need and really their lack of faithfulness. And, and I think that Sardis and Laodicea are really uh, very much indicative of the, the modern church uh, because a lot of times there is a facade of faithfulness. We can get busy doing a lot of things that have nothing to do with the Great Commission. You know, as we talked about the Great Commission uh, last week, I mean, there's a lot of, in essence, good things that a lot of churches are engaged in and not necessarily unnecessary things. And yet they blind us to the reality that we're not engaged in great commission work. We're not calling anybody into relationship with Christ. We ourselves are not really growing uh, as we should in relationship with Jesus. And so we, we placate our hearts in essence by doing what we consider good things. We might placate our hearts by going out and, and serving a, a population that is in need and with our hearts placated, we feel good that we've done something that we believe to be and know to be good. And then we never really engage in the work that Christ has really called us to. We, we spoke last time in the Great Commission podcast about one of the hindrances to engaging in the Great Commission is fear. But this one's different. It's apathy. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, I don't even think they recognize their apathy. I think the church in Laodicea in particular doesn't even see how apathetic they are because life in essence is good. It, it says the church in Laodicea, it could be the church in Fishers, Indiana, where we live yep. in the United States of America. When Jesus speaks, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Ouch. Yeah. The people who feel like they've made it. Jesus said, you're not even close. You're lukewarm. You know, they, they little game, you know, hot, it's hotter, it's hotter, it's hotter. We're like, it's cooler. It's warm. It's not, it's tepid. It, that's what the word here is, at least to Laodicea whether or not that's to us as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things that, that I really genuinely love, and, and part of it is it's, a, in essence, a, a mission trip into my heart, <laughs> but going into different contexts, into places of extreme poverty um, internationally, taking an international mission trip, and in essence, a mission trip uh, into a place of extreme poverty and allowing the folks uh, who we are going in in essence to serve, to actually serve us and to speak into our hearts. And, um, you know, one of my favorite places on the planet is, is Uganda and my very limited time there. But when I had visited Uganda and in the existing relationships that I have with some pastors there, I remember when, when we were there with a group, they, you know, constantly, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. And all I knew to say was there's a mutuality here, brother, because I promise you that you are speaking more into our hearts than we could ever begin to speak into your hearts because you are living uh, a life in Christ that is a prophetic word 
to me, and it's a prophetic word to everybody who has come with me, because the level of faithfulness that you are demonstrating in your relationship with Christ and understanding God's call upon your life to go and to bear witness to Christ, you know, it again, it's a prophetic word to us. It's calling us really to repentance as we observe uh, you in your ministry, in your life uh, in Christ. That's a good, challenging thought. To, to anybody who's listening to this who feels like in one of these churches or the, the words that, that applies to you in your life, here's some comfort in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19 to 20. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It's a good word for us today about what Jesus says to the church and to us. Next week, our final week, this is episode 52 coming up. It's all about Jesus' promise to come again. Folks, if you want to jump in deeper, go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, or our church app and click on the Life of Jesus link. You'll find more elements that help you explore these topics in a deeper way. Next week, we'll wrap it up with episode number 52 and then give you more info about the coming year, the mission of Jesus, the rest of the New Testament. Until then, may God bless. Mm-hmm.